Exótica. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Today's episode, I want to talk a bit about the oil and gas industry. I have worked in the oil and gas industry for nearly a decade now. May 2012 is when I got my first oil and gas job to speak of. There was a brief period three months before that, or two months before that, in which I worked for a roustabout company, an oil field services company based out of Baker, Montana, and they were super sketchy. That lasted two or three days and just very unpleasant, and they wanted me up on top of these oil storage tanks hanging over the side, tightening up bulkhead fittings, no fall arrest gear, nothing, and I wasn't comfortable with that. The tops of the metal oil tanks were icy and snowy, and it was windy, and I had never done that kind of work before, and I'm afraid of heights, and you're 20-plus feet up in the air. I asked for some fall arrest gear, and I was told that I was just going to have to get over it, and I ended up telling them after finishing out the day, uh, the next morning, I texted and I said, I'm I'm out. I quit. I'm done. Uh, the funny thing was, the funny thing was, even though that's not an uncommon experience for young men, I was 25 at the time, young men getting started in the oil and gas industry, it's all too common a story. Uh, working for some smaller operator, some smaller company that thinks they're going to cut costs and be really hard and tough and all that by ignoring all safety concerns, just get the job done. That's how we're going to make a name for ourselves. The funny thing is, when I went to work for ConocoPhillips as an operator two or so months later, I told that story somewhat apologetically to my new supervisor and also the head of, I don't remember his particular title, but basically he was the guy that was in charge of rewriting all of the policies or writing new policies for ConocoPhillips in the Williston Basin and in the Rockies more broadly. I told both of them that that was my only experience in oil and gas prior to coming to work for Conoco. And I was expecting to get a reprimand or be told that that's not a good way to be successful and shame on you and that kind of thing. And what I was told instead was for the exact same reason that job with the little oil field services company out of Baker, Montana. I don't even remember the name of the company anymore. For the exact same reason that they didn't want me around at that little outfit, I was going to be a good fit for ConocoPhillips. They wanted exactly the sort of person that I was, that I was going to stand up to 
a unsafe situation and say, I'm not doing that. I'm not hanging over the side of this icy tank on a windy, cold, icy day in North Dakota when you could very easily give me some safety gear here to make sure I don't fall and break my neck. I was exactly the sort of person that ConocoPhillips wanted working for them in the Williston Basin. And part of the reason for that is those small outfits, a lot of times, what they haven't learned yet is that you actually will take your business's livelihood in its hands. Uh, you, you will risk everything when you cut corners on very inexpensive mitigation of hazards. The hazard you refuse to mitigate will, will bite you at some point. And it will be far more expensive than what it would have cost to mitigate that hazard. The big established players that have been at this for decades, they know just how expensive, from experience, just how expensive one of their employees falling off of a tank and breaking their neck is. They know just how expensive it is when the work is done in a shoddy way because you were trying to save time, you were trying to get it done quicker, you were trying to use cheaper materials, you were hiring unskilled people and then not keeping them around, not giving them the opportunity to do it, not training them. Those big players are big because they learned the lesson, because they didn't cut every corner possible and skimp out on every possible mitigation. So what I've found in working for companies as big as ConocoPhillips and companies as small as my cousin Brent's Hydrovac operation based out of Bloomfield, Montana, and a few in between, some companies that have hundreds of employees, some companies that have just a couple dozen, like my current outfit, a couple dozen employees, what I have found consistently is that the bigger companies get embroiled in red tape. And you'll have some original thinkers. You'll have some good apples, some people that are smart and capable and hardworking and honest, and they want to work together. And you'll also have very unscrupulous persons who want nothing so much as advancing their own interests. And they don't care who they step on, who they throw under the bus. One of the things you need to understand about oil and gas is that it is a turbulent industry. Supply and demand dynamics cause the price of oil and the supply of oil and the price of gas and the supply of gas, although to a much lesser extent with natural gas compared with oil. The prices for oil and gas go up and down and up and down. Now, right now, I've got oilprice.com up on my computer. And the headline is, forget $100, options traders now betting on oil prices hitting $200. Speculative traders, I'm sorry, speculative traders are betting on the options market that oil could exceed $100 a barrel by the end of this year and even reach a record $200 per barrel by the end of 2022. $200 a barrel oil, by the way, would be pretty catastrophic for the economy 
for our country's economy and for the global economy. You don't really want $200 a barrel oil. But this is what you get, right? This is what you get when somebody at the very top has decided we're going to cut production. That's it. We don't need to produce this domestically. We're going to ask other countries to produce more oil. We're going to ask OPEC. In the case of Joe Biden, he put the word out here a few months back asking OPEC to open their spigots and produce more oil for all our sakes. And OPEC, for their part, said, yeah, no, that's funny. That's a funny story because we've been trying to bankrupt American energy for a while now. Certainly for the past decade that I've been in, OPEC has felt very, very threatened by American energy companies producing shale formations. The more we produce, the less we need from them. And not only do we need less from them, but other countries need less from them. Oil prices coming down is not such a great thing for petrostates whose entire economies are built on oil and gas production. But oil and gas production is very good for an economy which is large and robust, which wants to transport goods, for instance, which has supply chain issues, for instance, like ours. Our country has supply chain issues, and we need to transport goods. We've got truck driver shortages. We've got manufacturing that needs to be moved back to America from other countries. We don't need to encourage OPEC to produce more oil. We need to produce our own energy here at home, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Biden administration begs OPEC for more oil. Published 21 hours ago. That's one of the top editorials here at oilprice.com. But what's interesting is you get somebody at the very top who decides, despite all arguments, all reasonable and self-evident and commonsensical arguments one could make as to what is in the objective best interest of our economy, of our people, high-paying jobs here in the U.S., a lower cost of energy would translate to a lower cost of everything else which energy is required to produce and transport. Regardless of those arguments, Biden has not been friendly to oil and gas, but he wants to encourage OPEC to produce more oil and gas. It's insane. But you see this kind of a character, just like Biden. You, you wouldn't believe it. You would think that the oil and gas industry is full of a whole lot of conservative people who are very common sense, but there are some real winners. And when I say winners, I don't mean genuine winners. I mean sarcastically some very unscrupulous and short-sighted people who work in the oil and gas industry who look at the up-down nature and they are out for number one themselves. They want to make sure that when the dust settles, whether it's a boom or it's a bust, in the industry. They're the ones left with a job, with a good job. They get as far as they possibly can. And they don't care who they step on, who they crush, who they eliminate. They don't care what truths they have to bend 
what good taste and good judgment they have to discard and throw out the window. They just don't care. And at the same time, you have some other very, very decent people who work in oil and gas. It's not all rough, uncouth, ignorant people in the oil and gas industry. It's not all young, dumb men who don't know how to manage their money and they think that a big souped-up truck is a good investment for the future. It's not all that. There are some decent, hardworking, attention-to-detail people who just want to be able to provide for their families. That's all they want. They want to be able to take care of their wives and their children and live a peaceful life, minding their own business, working with their hands. They don't want to get hurt. They don't want anybody else to get hurt that they're working with. They want to do a good job getting oil and gas out of the ground and transported to where it needs to go to run the economy. Call me a little bit biased, but I would put myself in that category. I think I get along with the folks in the oil and gas industry who are just even-keeled, matter-of-fact, this is what I'm here for, this is what I want to do, I want to do a really good job, and I don't like cutting corners, and I don't like, I hate, 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 actually, I hate the short-sighted, let's cut costs at all costs, because there's a cost to cutting costs. When it's up, down, up, down, up, down, and in the downturns, you refuse to spend any money whatsoever. When things pick back up and you're producing and you forget about all of the things that you cut corners on, that's when people get hurt. And that's when you have accidents. And that's when you have equipment failures. And that's when you have environmental incidents. And that's when you have trouble. If you're still dotting your I's and crossing your T's, minding your P's and Q's when things are a little bit wobbly. You will be glad for it when everything picks back up. But I can't tell you how many times in nearly a decade I have run into very short-sighted approaches to working in oil and gas in boom and bust. In the boom, you get lazy good-for-nothings who think, I'm making great money. There's such a shortage of qualified workers that it really doesn't matter if I do my job. It doesn't matter if I do my job poorly or if I do it not at all or if I cut corners or if I'm padding my hours or it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how I conduct myself. I got a job and I'm good, right? Or I know the right people, so it doesn't matter what I do. I'm good. Very short-sighted, very short-sighted. At a certain point, you're going to have a downturn, and then what? You're low man on the totem pole, unless your friends are very, very committed to you, and they've got other people in the organization who are going to do the actual work, you're gonzo. Good luck. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. And in downturns, the flip side is, in the downturn, you have folks who Regardless what the argument is for why this would be a value and why this is going to be good in the long run, they don't want to spend anything. They don't want you to work the overtime. They don't want you to put in the extra finishing efforts to make sure this is done properly and done right and it's going to endure as long as possible. They don't care. And the trouble is when they're in the downturn, 
They can't quite bring themselves without top-level upper management exerting pressure on them. They can't quite bring themselves to think about the future past the downturn. So when you're in the boom cycle, you get jokers who can't think past the boom to the bust. And when you're in the bust, you get jokers who can't think past the bust into the next boom. And my ambition from when I very first got into the industry, when it was still booming back in 2012, North Dakota, Williston Basin, the Bakken, as it was popularly known, my ambition was I am going to work really hard and take care of my route, take care of my equipment, and say what I mean and mean what I say and give firm handshakes and thorough reports and do as much of my own maintenance as I possibly can and ask as many questions as I possibly can and learn as much as I possibly can about how to do my job well and keep my head on a swivel to the best of my abilities because I know that I know that I know that at a certain point, the market's going to dip. This is not going to last forever. Reality will resume, and I do not want to be that guy over there who doesn't leave his house till 10, comes home at 1, is calling truck drivers and asking them to switch out of tanks and restart his wells, calling roustabouts and asking them to change the packing on his stuffing box for his pumping wells because that packing is leaking now. It's been leaking for weeks, and he just keeps trying to tighten it down. There's no threads left, but you keep tightening, 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 tightening. I don't want to be that guy because that guy is not long for this world in terms of being employed here. In downturns, I have tried to think past the moment. Yes, yes, yes. Right now, things are a little bit tight, but all of our competitors think that things are really tight right now too. So what are the things that they're not doing that we could do that would give us a competitive advantage over them, help us to get that edge so that we are poised to dominate whatever comes? You know, that roustabout crew that I worked for, the crazy thing is it was a boom. And whether on principle or because they just wanted to save as much money as possible or just sadism or it was a litmus test, or they just didn't like me, or whatever, they weren't going to spend a couple hundred bucks to get a fall harness, lanyard, do things properly. They weren't going to spend it. They weren't going to spend that money, even though it's an OSHA requirement. It's really not negotiable. Legally, they are obligated. They weren't going to spend the money. If I had fallen and broken my neck, and they had been sued they would have been kicking themselves hard that they hadn't sprung for the safety equipment when they had the chance. Two hours of a lawyer's time, and you could have bought all the safety gear. And that two hours, that was just your consultation. That's not him taking your case and trying to defend your company from complete and total bankruptcy. Because one of your new employees fell and died and now his family's after you. You know, it's like my supervisor, my first supervisor at ConocoPhillips commented when I told him that story. 
He said, you can't spend a paycheck if you're dead. You know, nice big paycheck. Sounds really great. And it really actually wasn't even that great of pay. It was like $16 an hour, which I thought was fantastic coming from Southern Ohio, where I was used to making at most $35,000 a year salary, $10 an hour at the factory, very economically depressed, lots of unemployed people looking for work, not enough jobs to go around. $16 an hour? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, please. Imagine my delight when my first job with ConocoPhillips was $23 an hour. Starting out, I get the call from Keith when he's offering me the job. I'm afraid all I can offer you is $23 an hour. And I'm trying to pretend to be very disappointed, really grappling with it. Oh, man, I don't... I don't know. I don't. It's only two and a third times what I've made at most anywhere else. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can take that. I was one of only two people in the organization in 2016. I think it was early 2016, the same year that they closed the Sydney office, and I opted for severance. I was one of only two people in the company, in the Wellston Basin, who got a raise. We're talking other people getting laid off. I got a raise. A large part of that had to do with my getting after it, boom or bust. And thinking big picture, I didn't see myself as being confined to ConocoPhillips, clearly, because I'm not there anymore. It was four and a half years, first four and a half years of my oil and gas career. But since then, I've worked for my cousin Brent and used to moonlight on my days off because I had an eight and six schedule. Technically, it was seven and seven, but it really was eight and six because our double up days were never half days, quote unquote. They were always more like three quarter days or full days because you and your route partner are both out there hitting the route, trying to get pumps switched out or cleaned up or fixing leaks or rebuilding dumps or back pressure regulators or changing packing, all that kind of stuff, all that good stuff. And on my days off, I'd go work for my cousin Brent because he had a Hydrovac and Hydrovac business and it was a little bit of extra money. And then I got on with ZI, field services technician, that was not as much money as I had been making when I left Conoco. And it certainly was not as free and easy a job in terms of being able to manage myself. I really, really like managing myself. And to be quite honest with you, I do very well at it. I do well at managing myself. But we had project managers out of Riverton, Wyoming and Greeley, Colorado, who had never worked a day in their lives in the oil and gas industry, but they were supposed to look out for every detail of the project. They were the go-between with the customer. And a lot of things got lost in translation. A lot of details that they should have had, they didn't know were important details because they didn't know the right questions to ask. And even if we asked them, if I asked them, they were trying to justify their position and customers were frustrated, and they would just call us directly, call me directly, cut out the middleman. This gal doesn't know what she's talking about. 
and what I'm talking about. I'm just going to ask you directly. Oh, yeah, sure. We can settle this up in 30 seconds. Versus scheduling a call for tomorrow morning 30 minutes with your boss, with her boss, everybody trying to make this very serious and get a spreadsheet on Google Docs and all that good nonsense. This could be a 30-second phone call, quick text, quick email. I worked my way up from being a field services technician, collecting oil samples, testing them for true vapor pressure, helping out with meter installs and automation builds and labeling and terminating wires and troubleshooting devices and then from that on to being an automation technician, installing and servicing oil-filled instrumentation, low voltage, 24 volts or less, devices, wellhead, tank battery, separator, and then I worked my way up to being regional supervisor for automation services. And all of a sudden I'm shaking hands with vice presidents of the company, talking with them at length about what I'm seeing from my perspective, here's my experience. Nobody else here really has the experience that I do, having worked for ConocoPhillips, having been doing essentially the production specialist job, but always getting passed over for promotion because certain people had no end to the list of buddies, family and friends that they wanted to get hired on to the company. But I was doing the work. That didn't last because I was offered this supervisor position. And I naively assumed they would backfill my previous position. And because we were killing it, we had customers asking left and right for more technicians. And we were making $130, charging $130 an hour for our services. And all the while, we had a general manager for the Rockies who was claiming to higher-ups that we were a loss leader, that our department, automation, was a loss leader, and that we were getting too much overtime. Well, all the while, forget the fact that we're getting overtime because we've got a lot to do, and you refuse to hire people. Forget that. This is actually a good thing, but you're choosing to emphasize the fact that we're being paid overtime. Overtime for us, if it turns out to be $40 an hour per overtime hour, you're charging 130 okay? Let's do the quick math here. Think along with me. $130 is more than $40 by a lot. So you're making money. If you're not making money when we're charging 130 and my overtime hour is 40 and when I'm pleading with you to hire more technicians because we've got customers who want us, who like the work that we do, who like the work that we do far better than our competitors because we've got our competitors figured out. We know what to do and we're doing it and we can keep on doing it. I had a general manager over me who was trying to protect the part of the organization, which was an expansion through acquisition. And he wanted to protect the other lines of business from automation because automation was going to run away with the ball. We were going to get too much credit, 
too much funding, too much excitement. He wanted to protect the other lines of business because that's where the other folks who had come from the company that was bought by ZI worked. Almost all of them, nearly all of them worked for these other lines of business. And I lasted about four months. Four months was all I could do of getting straight salary, being blocked left and right as I'm trying to get more technicians hired. We've got the embarrassment of riches, turning down work. Finally, in the last month or so, they switched me back to being paid hourly because I'm working all of a sudden 70 hours a week doing my old job plus the new supervisor position. I'm supposed to be at meeting after meeting after meeting and also travel out of state because I'm covering the Rockies. So I'm going down to Wyoming, I'm going down to Colorado, I'm working in Montana and North Dakota, flying down to Texas on calls with technicians in New Mexico, on calls with integrators in Canada. The last few weeks, they switched me back to hourly, temporarily, started getting people in the pipeline to interview, started getting job postings up there. But by then, it's like I've been here in this position for three months plus and counting. I'm out of town every week, and I don't know from week to week how many days I'm going to be out of town. And you're not compensating me at the level I was making before I stepped into this role, but you're having me do twice as much work. You're having me do my old job and this new job, and you're blocking me from actually succeeding. Like I've, I've been essentially doing this job without the title for going on a year. And so successfully that regardless of whether I just got the title, the fruits of my labor are right here, but you won't listen. You won't listen as I'm trying to make the case because you've got your own selfish interests that you're trying to protect. You're trying to protect your group and your self to be more to the point you protect your group because your group is going to protect you in a jam so my arguments my appeals my business case falls on deaf ears so i talked with two of my fellow technicians one of whom i had brought on got into the business got him set up on his first account at a very good still has a very good reputation with that company newfield exploration got purchased by Incana, which has now been renamed to Oventive, which is a dumb name, but whatever. And we're out. We'll go work for them. Got hired on in-house, making even more money with far less stress. And my boss there, actually based out of Utah, so he's not local, which was par for the course and fine. But my boss out of Utah, electrical engineer, deep background in instrumentation, controls, PLC programming, all that. Very sharp technically. I left working for him with an offer that I could have the automation foreman position or instrumentation, INE foreman position. If I stayed, he'd get me more pay, more benefits, more time off told me I was a rock star. I was going to be a rock star anywhere I went. I ran into integrators and a vice president for a programming and uh, electrical engineering firm here in Denver. Met them for breakfast actually here 
several months ago. And somehow the topic came up that I had worked for Encana for a time. And I'm sitting there and they're like, oh, what's, what was the name of that guy we did a job for with Encana? He was really, really good. He was really sharp. And they're trying to think of it and talking about where he was based out of. And they start describing him. And I'm smiling to myself because I'm like, I know exactly who you're talking about. What, what was his name? Was it Ru? Uh, and I said, Russ Cloward? Yes. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, he was really, really good. Oh, yeah. He used to be my boss. And we got along really, really good, really well. And he told me I was a rock star. And he hated to lose me. That guy. Yeah. Yep, I like him. Good guy. And what's crazy is, I mean, <laughs> working on the midstream side, it's a bit different. <clears throat> it's a bit different than the upstream side, the production side. Far more stable. There's far less turbulence. But the turbulence in the upstream production side, at a certain point, it reaches the gas side because you get fewer wells drilled, which means less gas going into pipelines, which means less gas going through your plant, which means if you're in the business like we are of making NGL, condensate, selling those things, you're not making as much NGL, which means sometimes you have facilities which were built to a much higher capacity of volume and they're not operating at that capacity. So the past two years plus, uh, September actually made <clears throat> two years with Sterling Energy here in Colorado, but the past two years have been a bit of a, a learning curve. And I'll say this, a couple of things. I'll leave you with these because I got to run, speaking of work. For one, <clears throat> short-term thinking from this administration here in the U.S. is a large part of why we're headed for $100 a barrel oil. Possibly, they say 200 You always have to take these traders with a grain of salt. Things go a little bit bad. You're going to have people trying to make headlines. Oh, it's going to be off. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be the worst thing ever. It's probably not. Just chill. Things go a little bit better Oh, this is going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be the best thing ever, right? You'll always get the loudest voice in the room predicting the most extreme outcome. But I will tell you, I, I am quite confident the $100 a barrel oil is a safe bet. We're at $82.11 right now. Oil and gas companies need to invest in the next boom and be ready for it. I would advise any young man particularly, who thinks about getting into the oil and gas industry, manage your money carefully. Do not buy something big and expensive that is going to have a payment attached to it, that's going to depreciate in value. Spend your money conservatively. Manage your money conservatively so that when a supervisor thinks they're very clever and they're going to cut all of your overtime, even when things are picking up, just because it looks good on the spreadsheet and that's all they care about, short-term, short-term win for them, even at your expense, you are able to cash flow. Save your 
money. Save, 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 save. Particularly if you live in a boom area, boom town area. Save your money because when, when the market corrects and it goes down again, you're going to have a whole lot of Bubba Joes and Billy Bobs trying to sell guns and toys, four-wheelers, TVs, souped-up trucks, boats, all that for a lot less than what they paid for them. And if you've got some savings, you can swoop in, pick that up on the cheap. And if you all of a sudden need to get out of a bad situation with an organization or people in an organization who have suddenly turned very cutthroat because all they care about is surviving this downturn that they think is here or has been here for some time or we're just coming out of or whatever, have something saved away so that if you need to, you can get out of there. And I would recommend too, if you can get yourself into a good rotational schedule, like for instance, a lot of operators work a week on, a week off, get yourself into a good schedule like that where there's a rhythm to it and get an education or certification in something technical or in something that's going to have legs beyond just the oil and gas industry. That's been one of the biggest fears of mine is in a downturn, when the oil and gas industry is not doing so hot, am I able to do something else to put food on the table for my family? Do I have transferable skills? That's why in large part I got into the I&E thing because if oil and gas just completely ceases to be a viable industry to work in tomorrow, I know that other industries have instrumentation. Other industries have PLCs and automation. Other industries have electrical systems that need to be serviced. So I'll do all of those things, take care of all those things in the oil and gas industry. And if I have to, have to, have to, I want to have transferable skills to something else. And that's another reason to have a savings so that if you have a savings and some other industry might hire you on with those transferable skills, you get your foot in the door because you're a young buck that started in the oil and gas industry, but you haven't ever quite done this exactly. Having some savings to help you make that transition, whether you've got to move, whether it's going to be a pay cut, whatever, that'll take a lot of stress off of your plate. And if you're married, have children, it's going to take a lot of stress off of your family's plate. But all that said, keep your stick on the ice. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.